Would you open God's precious holy word with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. I'm going to look at verse 17 again today to get a start into verses 18 through 22. Prepared for suffering. Peter is writing to these scattered gospel seed bearing divinely placed Christians who are in the region of the Roman Empire that today is known as the nation of Turkey. He's been telling them who they are in Christ, how to live in a a land among people who hate them, who are being told lies about them and their faith, their Lord. And so we go back then to verse 17 and let's look at it is better to suffer for doing good if the will of God wills it than for doing evil. All right, we'll stop there. Peter is saying this to these Christians who are, and to say that they're in a minority is almost an, it's it's just an understatement. There are just very few of them and they are profoundly outnumbered by pagans, Roman pagans in the Roman empire who have been condemned really by the Caesar, Nero, falsely accusing them of things. And so this naturally brings um, mistrust and, and hatred, spitefulness on behalf of those who don't really know Christians. So Peter's been telling them, we've been studying it. Here's how they get to know you as a Christian. Here's how the world can understand who a Christian is and who we are, where we live. These are the things that you're called to do. You're called, he said, to be a blessing. You remember that? Last time we ended with this verse 17, you're also called to suffer. It's better to suffer for doing good if the will of God wills it than for doing evil. It would be an evil thing to deny who you are in Christ. To deny how you are compelled to live in a fallen world. We are saints. We are holy because God has separated us. The only thing that's different between us and those around us who are unbelievers is that we've been saved by grace. But we have this testimony We were once where you are. And we've found something so much gloriously better living in Christ. And this is going to cause us to suffer. And I think today, you and I in the modern world, even in America, are going to have to understand that we're called to suffer as Christians. 
we are rapidly coming into a a world that increasingly despises Christianity and Christ and will do everything they can do to stop your testimony and to condemn you for who you are in Christ. And the world will lie about you. You're a racist, you're a bigot, you're a hater of people, you're intolerant, all this kind of stuff. They'll tell all, and so the world is going to say, oh, he's a Christian. If I turn my back, he's liable to shoot me. They're, they're told all kinds of things about Christians, which in a sense makes the modern world as we go along really no different than what these Christians were facing back there in their day in a place where they are living a woefully separated life from everybody else around us. Therefore, the Holy Spirit through Peter is saying to the church there, you need to be prepared to suffer. So this, this section, verses 18 through 22, which completes chapter 3, is sandwiched between two statements that cause it to stand on its own, this particular section. Uh, this this uh, section that we're in starts here in verse 18. Hote, because, because Christ also suffered. So this begins this section and the because here connects it to what just was preceding, which is namely, get ready to suffer. And then here's why and how you can prepare yourself for suffering. Now let me, I should have put it here on the slides, but I didn't. But I want you to consider uh, 1 Peter 4 and verse 1, which is the very next verse after the, what we're going to be in. And this sort of connects that to this and shows you how this particular section is sandwiched. Verse 1, chapter 4, Christ therefore, un, therefore. So you see, that, that, that starts a new thought, but it connects it to the previous thought. Therefore Christ, having suffered in the flesh, uh, you also, in the same mind, arm yourselves. Arm yourselves in the same mind. All right, so it connects us in both sections to this particular little section that tells us that we need to be ready to suffer. Here's why, and here are the reasons that, that will strengthen. This is what will strengthen us in our suffering. Number one, I think I have five of them here. Number one, it will strengthen us to remember that Christ suffered for us. It's better to suffer for doing good if the will of God wills it 
than for doing evil because Christ also suffered once or one time or once for all, one time for sins. He did it once for all purposes. He, 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 he did it absolutely and everything that was required of his suffering is all that was required. Everything that would be laid upon him, which would be the, which would be the guilt and the sin and the penalty of every one of God's elect laid upon Christ. And he suffered. Why did he suffer? Because Christ also suffered once for all or one time for sins. This little gathering of people scattered there on the eastern portion of the Roman Empire are being reminded that Christ suffered for you. And because he suffered once for you, this should make your suffering, suffering more, more palatable, easier to understand and even accept and live in because Christ also suffered and Christ in his teaching told us that the world would hate us because of him. And he said that we were no better than him. And if they mistreated him, they'll mistreat us. I mean, that's just the teachings of Christ in the gospel, especially of Matthew. So here, because Christ number, and he mentions two things here, because Christ also suffered once for all things, for all reasons, in our behalf, or one time, he'll never have to do this again. This, he did it once, he won't have to come back. You see, if you could be saved and then be lost again, Christ would have to keep coming back and dying over and over and over again for your sins. We won't do that. He does this once for all. This is the reminder to those Christians to whom Peter is writing. Christ has taken care of you one time. You are secure in Christ. He suffered for you. And your, your translation may say he died once for all. But the word in the Greek text up here, uh, paskin, means to suffer. And you could put little brackets around that and say even unto death. It's horrible suffering. Suffering that drains everything out of you, even life itself. And he did that once. He did it once for sins. Now, after Christ died on the cross, other people would be born. More sins will be committed. If there is a tomorrow... In the life of humankind, there will be sins committed. Christ took it all upon himself. Think of this. He died for his own and for all that we've done. Every thought, every deed, 
every time we've misbehaved, we've sinned, we have committed sin in our lives. All of these things require, you don't, you, the, the, Paul writes that we don't, have to, we don't have to sin but once to be a sinner. And regardless of how small society may deem that sin, it's still sin. Sin in any whit is sin. And it separates us from God. We can never be in the presence of God with sin that is unsettled. With sin that is not paid for. It requires a price. Now what is this price? Humanity through Israel in the Old Testament is given a graphic illustration of what God thinks of sin and what a terrible punishment God requires for sin. I've mentioned to you before about how God had to provide a sacrifice for Adam and Eve and tear its skins off and cover them with it. Something innocent that wasn't guilty of what they did had to die in their place. This is the only way Adam and Eve could ever continue. Now in the law, through the vast portion of the Old Testament, God's people Israel are given these five offerings, sacrifices, and two of them especially deal with sin, guilt and sin. A sin that you know you committed and a sin that you found out that you committed that you didn't know you committed. It's sin regardless. There's, there is no plea for ignorance before the Lord. We're all born in sin. All of us have sinned and all of us have come short of the glory of God. One of the things that you can think about as you read the scriptures is to consider how horrific, and that's not really a good enough word, how terrible the wrath of God is on sin. The wrath of God. The least sin, if you want to categorize sin, would still require the full wrath of God. Now, it's going to be paid for. Your sin, that you are part of a fallen race in sinful condition, your sin will be paid for one way or another. Christ, if you are of Christ's own, Christ pays that price for you. We accept that by faith. The horrible suffering, the death of the cross, the wrath of God. When the father turned his back on the son and would declare that thing is sin. All of my sins and all of the sins of God's elect poured upon him. And he accepted it. He took it. He became my redeemer. And he suffered once for all time for sins. 
The wrath of God came down on him for my sins and for yours if you're in Christ. It was substitutionary. It was vicarious. It was the atonement. And here it is. The righteous for the unrighteous. This is by the design of God. Now, here is how God demonstrates daily, weekly, monthly, annually, all the way through for hundreds of years in the Old Testament. This is how God demonstrates his wrath on sin and his requirement for payment. The illustration was a sweet little animal, innocent, a lamb, had to be taken. The person who had raised that, the shepherd perhaps, the lamb trusted it. It's, it's liquid brown eyes looking into the face of the shepherd who himself would have been weeping and crying because he is required to carry this innocent little thing and have it slain on the altar so that he can live. Time after time after time, giving it to the Levite. The Levite takes it and the little thing squirms and bleats and cries. And the razor sharp knife comes across its throat. And it bleeds out on the altar until it's dead. This little sweet, innocent, unblemished thing figuratively, vicariously took the sin of the worshiper. Time after time after time to constantly remind the people of God of the terrible price of sin. Life, innocent, unblemished life, something has to die. There's a death penalty with sin. And the worst thing is this, the spiritual death penalty is eternal torment. It never stops. You pay and pay and pay because you didn't have a substitute to pay that price for you. This is atonement. This is why I come to church to worship Christ. This is why I read the scriptures. This is why I pray in thanksgiving and gratitude Humbled before the presence of the Father who sent his only begotten Son. What Father among us would send his Son, who had not committed a crime, to go and to be cruelly punished for the crime of another? We would fight and destroy everything that tried to touch our son. But for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. The love of God. It is a love that I cannot approach. I cannot attain. It is a love beyond anything that I could comprehend that he would send his only begotten son 
to die for me. So I'm made a little uncomfortable. Maybe I even have to walk away from my job because I simply disagree and cannot compromise who I am in Christ. Maybe, maybe I have to suffer in some other ways. Such a small and insignificant thing compared to what Christ did for us. So my, my, I'm strengthened in my suffering to remember how Christ suffered for me. But there's a second thing that strengthens me. By remembering Christ and how he defeated the greatest enemy and brought us safely to God. These things he did so that he might bring you to God. I have no other pathway to heaven, none. There's only one. There's only one way. Christ himself proclaimed, it is eternally true and infallibly so. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. I have no other path. I have no other way to be saved. Absolutely none. I cannot do good. I still struggle in a fallen nature until finally and at last it falls off of me in the dead body and my spirit goes to the Lord and then finally I'm raised in a glorified body to be incorruptible. That's where I'm headed in Christ. But, uh, but as I travel this path, I still struggle with things. We all do. We have to stay in the word and we have to stay on our knees. But Christ took care of it for us that he might bring you to God. Having indeed been put to death in the flesh, but having been made alive in the spirit. All right, so I'm strengthened thinking of how Christ suffered for me and my suffering cannot be compared with his suffering. I'm strengthened to know that Christ has defeated death for me and has brought me safely to God so that he might bring you to God. But there's this third thing. I'm strengthened when I think of how Christ, the Spirit of Christ, has spoken to humanity through every age. I'm strengthened when I reflect upon the days of Noah. Those, those seem like such helpless days. Now the bottom line here is that how there was this minority, eight souls, against the rest of the world. But it was not a disadvantage to be among that minority. So let's look at it. Now, I'm going to have to tell you, we're going to get into the language here, the Greek language. And through, through the Christian era, 
there has been sharp disagreement on what this means, what this particular passage means. I go to, anytime I'm confused or need clarification, I just go to the language. And so I'm going to tell you how I see it from the language. And you may disagree with me, which means that you can apologize to me at the judgment seat of Christ. Now, let's go back. He was made alive in the spirit. Now, it's in this spirit. In which spirit? He also preached to the spirits having departed. Aorist, passive, having departed. Aorist, passive, in Koine Greek. That's how Peter wrote it. That's how the Holy Spirit inspired it. Having departed. Aorist, means that it's a once for all thing, like a snapshot to prove that it happened. It happened. And in the passive, it happened. It happened to them. They were acted upon by another energy, another force, another subject. The subject is acted upon from without. And he, he does not nor cannot act upon himself. That's what it means to be in the passive. Aorist passive. It happened, and these spirits couldn't do it to themselves. The Spirit of Christ, now you go back to 1 Peter 1.11, and he writes in there, we saw it, we studied it, that the Spirit of Christ was in the prophets. We see at the very end of the Bible, the end of the book, that the angel in mid-heaven preaches the everlasting, the eternal gospel. And then it's defined that the preaching of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, is the spirit of preaching, the spirit, the, who Christ is. Now, in the Old Testament, they didn't know his name, but they knew who he was. Hamashiach, the Messiah, the seed of woman, the first promise given that a savior was coming for us, that he might nullify the horrible thing that Adam had done. Okay? Aorist passive. It happened. It happened to them. Another did it to them. Someone sent them to prison. The spirits, having departed or having gone, now in prison. Now, having disobeyed, the aorist active. It happened once. It's like a, when I was taking Greek one in seminary, we, the aorist is an interesting, we don't have aorist tense in English. It's a, it's a Greek thing. And the aorist, the best way to describe it that I heard was to take a snapshot. It happened. And every time you look at that snapshot, you say, you know, there it is. And I'm looking at the happening. It happened. And it's always recorded that. So here it is. Having disobeyed, that's aorist. But it's also in the active, not the passive, but the active, which means the subject acts upon himself. The subject performs the action. Having disobeyed at one time, there was a time when this snapshot was taken 
and they disobeyed and they were sent to prison because it's in the passive. It was done to them. They didn't do it to themselves. It happened and it happened upon them from another, God. Now in prison. Now, in the passive, but here in the active, they disobeyed. Having disobeyed at one time or once, when did this happen? In the days of Noah. Where was the picture taken? It was taken in the pre-flood world. Who was in the picture? Those whose spirits are now in prison. The spirit of Christ preached to the spirits having departed now in prison, having disobeyed at one time or once in the days of Noah, when the long suffering or the patience of God kept waiting. Now, this is in the imperfect, the imperfect middle voice. Boy, that's okay. Kept waiting. The imperfect means that it's a past action, but when it was happening, it just kept going. It was a continual action in the past. That's in the imperfect. If it was in the perfect tense, it would be always happening, still happening, will keep happening, but it's, it, it's in the imperfect. And it's in the middle voice, which means the subject initiates and participates in the results. All right? When the long suffering, the patience of God kept waiting as the ark was being prepared. Okay. When was the spirit of Christ preaching? In the time of the long suffering of God who kept waiting as the ark was being prepared. All right. So the spirit of Christ is preaching then. He's preaching to those who are now in prison, whose spirits have departed. They're dead. They're not alive anymore in the flesh, but their spirits have been sent to prison. All right? Thus the passive. They didn't do it to themselves. It was done to them. Spirits now in prison, having disobeyed in the active at one time, in the days of Noah, when the long-suffering patience of God kept waiting as the ark was being prepared. During that time... While they were a dying and going to hell, as the ark was being prepared, eight souls were saved. Only eight. I don't know how many people there were in the pre-flood world. Henry Morris once surmised, taking the average lifespan of, of the antediluvian age human, the average lifespan being around 800 to 900 years, Taking that and figuring in to how long in the lifetime people could procreate. And so he gave them 600 years of procreative ability, the, the ability to reproduce. And he kept multiplying that so people, you know, people would have, I don't know, hundreds of kids, I guess. And according to him, now, this is Henry Morris. This is not Brother Charles. This is just something I read. It's food for thought. He said there could have been as many as 32 million people in the pre-flood world 
Think about that. Whoa, wow. Well, if he's just half wrong, millions and millions of people in the pre-flood world. They had about 1,600 years and they kept having hundreds of kids and this, those kids had kids and their kids had kids and they just keep having a good time having kids. But they were not repenting, long-suffering, patience of God. Kept waiting. The Spirit of Christ. Enoch was a preacher in the pre-flood world, Jude tells us. He preached the coming judgment. Behold, the Lord comes with myriads of his saints. That's in the pre-flood world. He's talking about judgment when the Lord comes back with all of his saints. He's preaching in the spirit of Christ. He's preaching Christ. Christ, Peter will address it later in 1 Peter and we'll see it. And then in 2 Peter addresses it as well. That Noah, and then of course Hebrews 11, Noah was a preacher of righteousness. He preached in the spirit of Christ. Now this is a comfort to these people in Peter's day. Because in every age... There has been this minority, an extreme minority, who yet stood faithful in the midst of unbelief. And in the case of the days of Noah, even when the world was collapsing around them, they stood faithful. And the very thing that destroyed the rest of the world saved them. In which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. Go back and read. God shut the door to the ark. It was God's divine and sovereign purpose. To put an end to the call. Noah the preacher of righteousness. It was about 120 years there they say. How would I feel. If I preached 120 years. And the only people who were saved were my family. Well, I would rejoice over that, but I would feel, I would feel sorrowful. It would be painful. This man, Noah, who preached, strengthen yourself to know that in all ages and in all times, the Spirit of Christ has been busy preaching. That's what he, that's what he started out in 1 Peter 1.11, the, that the prophets had the Spirit of Christ. That's how the, the, the book ends in the Revelation, that it's, that it's the preaching of Jesus. He's the Spirit of prophecy. He's the Spirit of preaching. Jesus, Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior, blessed, holy Son of God. So then, for me to be suffering and to think that so many people are against me gets a little easier when I think of Noah and his family and how even then the Spirit of Christ was proclaiming through especially Enoch and, and uh, Noah. And for all of that, all the time the ark was being prepared, God kept waiting. Remember that? In the imperfect middle, the language speaks to us. And all that time, only a few, only eight, 
were saved. In other words, saint of God. Wherever you are, whenever you are, God has put you there for a purpose. Live like a Christian, which will be a sermon in itself to those who are around you. And proclaim Christ. To proclaim Christ as the Savior is not done in any other spirit but by the Spirit of Christ. The Holy Spirit of God. Which fills the church, the the true church, the believing church. And we are thus compelled to teach and preach of Christ. So it's not a severe disadvantage to be in the extreme minority because they were saved and escaped the flood. Everybody here, all of us are descended from this family. Every one of us. We're descended from that family. They were in the extreme minority in their day. So In the extreme minority, preaching in the spirit of Christ, maybe not many are coming, maybe some, but if I'm preaching in the spirit of Christ, God, God will touch the hearts of whom he will touch and draw them to himself. It's all of God. But in all ages, there has been this work of the spirit of Christ, preaching, In every generation of humanity. And this is to give us comfort in our suffering. I got to move fast here. Which now also corresponds. I like the way King James translates it. Which by like figure he says. It's it's an illustrative thing. Which now also corresponds to saving baptism. Not... The water part, not the putting away of the filth of flesh, but the demand of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It was God working in my heart and bringing me to faith that saved me. My initial testimony is the testimony to the resurrection of Christ and that the old person is dead and that the new person is raised to walk in newness of life. He says, the illustration of Noah is further illustrated into saving baptism. Paul writes, there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. You know what that baptism is? It is the baptism of the Holy Spirit of God. When God calls you, when God gives you the gift of repentance and faith and draws you to Christ, God plants his Holy Spirit in you and you are born again. That's the great saving baptism. Now it's illustrated in like figure and every Christian ought to be eager. I couldn't wait till the day I was baptized when I was a kid. Every Christian should be eager to walk down into that body of water so that the world will know 
that the old man is dead and that the new man has been raised to walk in a newness of life through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Christ was buried and he was raised again. Finally, we are comforted and strengthened regarding our suffering by understanding that Christ is at the right hand of God and he is in absolute power. Who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven, angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. I am so angry at the onslaught of demons in these last days. It burns me up. I think of my grandchildren in school. And then I I make the mistake of, of looking at the social media. And that as though I couldn't get any angrier. And my blood boils but I have to be brought back to this understanding and to this truth that greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. For all of their strength, you can, you can line up all of the demons of hell and Satan himself and his, his chief magistrates, Apollyon and Abaddon, And they cannot assault me. I'm, I, they can force people to mistreat me and, and things can happen to me. But I'm secure in Christ. And whatever is happening is happening by the will of God and I have to accept it. I have to understand God is sovereign. He is absolute. And then my Lord Christ is at the right hand of God. You know what that means? He's the hand of authority. He's on the side of authority. You read in the New Testament that God gave to the Son the power to create. So the Son of God created everything, time and space, and all that's in it. And he has, been, he has committed to him judgment over all as well. Everything lives and moves by his power. Colossians chapter 1. Paul writes to the, or Paul speaks to the Athenians in, on Mars Hill in Acts 17. In him we live and move and have our being. He is my Lord. Even if I die, he is my Lord. It is by his will and purpose. And I move in this world because Christ is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven, angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. There is no authority on earth, under the earth, over the earth. There is no power that exists that is not under the authority of Christ, who is my savior, my protector, my guardian, my friend, whose spirit resides in me and in this life. Thank you, Lord, that you called me into my salvation. Would you bow your heads and...
close your eyes. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. The only way we can come to the Father is through the Son. The only path to heaven is through Jesus Christ. The way, the truth, and the life. There is no other way. There is no other way. Perhaps you're here today without Christ. And just today, God is calling you to himself through Christ. We have deacons and their wives waiting to pray with you and to talk to you. As you exit, you will see them in the doorways. Just outside these doors, as you leave, you'll see deacons standing in the doorways. They're ready to pray with you. Maybe you're here, you're already a believer, and you want to come and be a part of Shiloh. They're ready to pray with you and talk to you about that as well. But for now, let's pray. Let's all stand together prayerfully and we'll be dismissed.